The Guardian. This is Owen Colfer and you're listening to the Guardian Children's Books podcast and I'm going to read to you from my new novel which is called Warp, The Reluctant Assassin and Warp stands for Witness Anonymous Relocation Program and the gist is that the FBI have managed to open the famous Einstein-Rosen Bridge or wormhole to Victorian London and they're stashing federal agents uh, back there. The piece I'm going to read introduces us to the two Victorian characters in the book Albert Garrick, who is a magician slash assassin, and then his young apprentice Riley, who is the reluctant assassin, who does not want to become an assassin. And indeed, on this night, is on his very first job and really wants to escape. Chapter One, The Killing Chamber, Bedford Square, Bloomsbury, London, 1898. There were two smudges in the shadows between the grandfather clock and the velvet drapes, one high and one low. Two pale thumbprints in a black night made darker still by blackout sheets behind the thick curtains and sackcloth tacked across the skylights. The lower smudge was the face of a boy, soot blackened and slightly shivering inside the basement chamber. This was young Riley, brought this very night on his first killing as a test. The upper smudge was the face of a man known to his employers as Albert Garrick, though the public had once known him by a very different name. His stage name had been the Great Lombardi, and many years ago he had been the most celebrated illusionist in the West End, until one night, during performance, he actually saw his beautiful assistant in half. Garrick discovered on that night that he relished taking a life almost as much as he enjoyed the delighted applause from the souls, and so the magician made a new career of assassination. Garrick fixed his flat murderer's eyes on Riley and gripped his shoulder, long bony fingers pressing through the fabric of the boy's coat, pinching the nerves. He didn't say a word, but nodded once, a gesture heavy with reminder and implication. Think back, said the inclined chin, to your lesson of this afternoon. Move silently as the Whitechapel fog and slide the blade in until your fingers sink into the wound. Garrick had instructed Riley to haul a dog carcass from the strand to their Holborn rooms and then practice his knife work on the suspended remains so he would be accustomed to the resistance of bone. Novices have the mistaken impression that a sharp blade will slip in like a hot poker through wax, he said, but it ain't so. Sometimes even a master like myself can come up against bone and muscle, so be ready to lever down and force up. Remember that, boy. Lever down and force up. Use the bone itself as your fulcrum. Garrick performed the move now with his long stiletto blade, tilting his wide blackened forehead at Riley to make certain the boy took heed. Riley nodded, then took his own knife, palming the blade across to the other hand as he had been taught. Garrick nudged Riley from the shadows towards the large four-poster bed on which lay the nearly departed. Nearly departed. This was one of Garrick's witticisms. Riley knew he was being tested. This was a real killing, a fat purse paid in advance. Either he snuffed out his first candle or Albert Garrick would leave an extra corp in this terrible, gloomy chamber and swipe himself a new apprentice from the gutters of London. It would pain him to do it, but Garrick would not see any other option. Riley must learn to do more than fry sausages and polish boots. 
Raleigh swept his feet forward one at a time, tracing a wide circle with his toes, as he had been taught, searching for debris. It slowed his progress, but one crackle of discarded paper could be enough to awaken his intended victim. Riley saw in front of him the blade in his own hand, and he could hardly believe that he was here, about to commit the act that would damn him to hell. When you have felt the power, you can take your place as my junior in the family business, Garrick would often say. Perhaps we should have cards of business made up, eh boy? Garrick and son, assassins for hire. We may be low, but we're not cheap. From that extract, we get a sense of the, the, the threat and the thrills and, and the, the goriness of this new book. But it also features time travel, which is a, a, quite a departure for you. It's your first book since you said goodbye to Artemis Fowl. Why did you choose time travel? I think uh, time travel fascinated me as a, as a boy and in the 1970s in Ireland, the late 70s, early 80s. It was a great time of TV time travel and you had shows like Doctor Who uh, and shows like The Tomorrow People and Planet of the Apes and these were all shows that I loved. They were also exotic shows because we didn't have those channels so I would have to somehow finagle myself into the house of a neighbour um, to see them and that made them all the more exciting and exotic and also I had a cousin from uh, Liverpool and every summer he came over and he was an avid reader as we were and he would bring a, literally a suitcase full of TV adaptations these little novellas uh, that were churned out by the BBC I think and we would devour these and so the, the subject of time travel for me conjures up these golden hued days of the teen years kind of the pre-girl years uh, when we were lying around on hot flat rocks on the seaside in County Wexford uh, reading about these amazing adventures of the past and future and I wanted to recapture that feeling for myself in a way it's a nostalgic feeling and this, this brought it back to me and, and I was able to relive my own youth in a way by writing this book. You said in your event earlier today in Edinburgh because we are at the Edinburgh Festival we're sitting outside the author's yurt so the background noise is author's burbling away. intellectual background noise. It is. <laughs> but you said in your event earlier today that ideas percolate for years and years. Yeah. So it sounds like that's the case with this book. Yes, and often you don't even realise they are percolating. and They're just in there, uh, in the morass of all these little ideas. And every now and then a bubble bursts and this idea floats up. I'd had this one, I think of it like a horse race. And the horse race of my mind, there's always seven or eight ideas running. And after a while, one pulls ahead. And uh, this one has been pulling ahead for the, for the past few years. But I wanted to just keep it in the background until I finished Artemis so that it wouldn't distract me. But as soon as I did, this just burst out and said, it's my turn now. You, you kind of have to do that, or if you don't do it, it, it just stays in there and you have to exercise it. And the only way to do that is to, is to get it onto the page. Was the element of magic, not, not magic as in Harry yeah. Potter magic, yeah. we're, talk, we're talking here about magician, illusionist yeah. magic. Was that also an idea whose time had come? Because you, you've got a fantastic villain in this book, Gary. Well, I, I think when you write a Victorian book, you have a little bit of license towards melodrama. I want to use that license to the furthest ex extent uh, of the permit and so Garrick is, I think he's one of my best villains so far, he's very very melodramatic and what's nice about it then is when he comes into the future or the present you can hold on to that melodrama and it really makes him stand out, he's this Victorian magician from the West End who's turned his hand to being an assassin and now 
he's loose in the modern West End, but he still retains his sense of melodrama. So he hasn't gone subtle like the rest of the world. He's still larger than life. He considers himself quite posh, I think, as well, or a gentleman, in spite of the fact that he's, a, he's an out-and-out -out nasty bad egg. Yeah, but I like him, and I think even though... I don't want to give away the end, but I think he's a, I'll have to bring him back somehow. I don't know how I'm going to manage it yet. But I didn't kill him as such. I just cut him adrift in time, so there's room to bring him back. And he has the perfect foil in, or for his melodrama in yeah. Chevy Savano, yeah. um, who is this fantastic girl yeah. character. Tell me a bit about her. Well, I wanted to uh, have a young girl in it and, and I wanted to have it in a way that wasn't, didn't strain credulity and I wanted her to, I knew she couldn't be an FBI agent but I had to, I was trying to think of a way that I could involve her and so I, I, I was looking on the internet and I found that, the, I think it was in the 1970s, it was one of the, these ridiculous plans that the CIA or FBI put forward to have children watching, you know, it was abandoned, it was never implemented but it was there, this plan that you could have you could recruit these younger people to watch schools and report back to spy and their, their fellow pupils, in other words. And I thought, well, what if it, it hadn't been abandoned and it was put ahead? So she was put in a school in uh, San Diego just to watch a Muslim family who they were suspected of being a possible terrorist cell, which they weren't, of course. And she ended up protecting them from bullies. And then this whole program, it looked like it was going to be exposed by Congress. So they just had to get her out of the country. So they sent her to... London to babysit this ridiculous 1970s pod that might or may not be a time machine. And of course, I think anyone who's ever read a book knows, well, we know what happens now. Obviously the pod comes to life and you you can bring together these characters that are the opposite of each other. So you've got this dark, melodramatic Victorian magician with, I suppose, the views, the slightly sexist views of a Victorian man and then you have this very young, vibrant, very modern, from a minority group, very equal opportunity, very feisty young lady. So just having those two in the same room is drama. Well, I wanted to ask you about research because you, it's, it's very um, firmly set in London. You yeah. mentioned place names, you mentioned street names, you yeah. mentioned shops. It feels like you've really researched it yeah. and these are real places. It, well, I think research is important because if your research is good, then when you go away from your research, people don't know. So when you, your place name is real, situation is real, this branch of the government is real, it gives a, it gives a reality to the whole story then. And also I tend to put in lies that sound real just for the sake of it, to amuse myself. Such as? Well, just I make up streets, I make up all sorts of things. So I will have three real streets and then one fake street. It also reads like a book that you had a great deal of fun writing. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean this brought me right back to Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, all of those type of books, The Grand Adventure, The Ledger Domain. I just, I just adored writing it. And uh, Is it as fun writing the second one or, or has some of that initial further worn off. No, I'm, I'm in, because I, after the first one I, I wrote a, a, a thriller so I've had a break for six months or a year. So going back to it now is great and there's, there's a different tone to the second one, it's kind of darker uh, and what I like about this series is that you have a lot of scope to change your period, time period and uh, your main characters. As long as I think I'm going to keep Riley and Chevy and then, but apart from that I, I'm, it's a total change of uh, 
everybody else has changed so uh, it's like Star Trek you know you fly off to a different galaxy every week and you just keep your core the, the bridge the bridge crew are still there but then you, you beam down to a whole new planet so the next book I believe is called The Hangman's Revolution yeah so would that be set maybe in France no The Hangman's Revolution is uh, set in London and the, the, the idea being where we left the last book um there was a team of English and American soldiers who had gone back and gone missing, and nobody knew who they were. And at the end of the book, you just meet them very, one of them very briefly, for like a page, just like a, an epilogue, and he's following Riley. And so what has happened since then is that uh, because of Chevy's appearance, they move up their plans, and their plans were to take over. They've been hiding in the catacomb, catacombs, building a missile to fire at Paris because they have the technology. And in the initial, what would have happened was the catacombs would have flooded and their plans would have been ruined. But because Chevy has turned up, they've moved everything forward. And so they've taken over the small group of uh, mercenaries and uh, military have managed to take over Europe. It's a new regime. They've modeled themselves on Nazi Germany. It's called the Hangman's Revolution because after the first intercontinental missile was fired they hanged everybody in parliament was hanged and the royal family so that's why it's known as this so when chevy arrives back in modern day london she arrives back as a cadet in the bauxite youth academy so that's like which is like the hitler youth and uh everything has changed and she realizes that it's because of her so she has to put everything right again so it's a it's a bit darker and it ex, you know explores themes you know dictatorship and fascism and and it, but there's some lighter bits. It still has the trademark comedy, but it's something I'm really enjoying. I mean, I know I don't know if enjoying is the right word. I'm going back studying the speeches of Hitler and seeing how he how he managed to control a nation like that because I want a very charismatic leader for this party, the Bauxite Party.